Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast. A bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 108, Pandemic Panic. Yes, it's a timely episode because um, I think almost everybody's doing something like this right now, but it's yeah, relevant. Really. And that's because we're all stuck inside of our houses at the moment, as we should Alex, be. Just which to is be your clear, social responsibility. I think all three of these movies are um, epidemics. Contagion might be a pandemic, but most of them are, are more yeah. localized. Outbreak and flu are epidemics, which threaten to become pandemics, and that's key yeah. plot points. Can- Contagion's definitely a pandemic. It's like all yeah. over the world. And actually, actually, you know what, Jonathan? There are a few lines in flu which hint that it is a pandemic. Like um, the fake British guy? Yeah, there's like reports of infections in other countries. Um, this is just the really big one in, in yeah. South Korea that they're dealing with. So there's hints that it could be, and they don't want it to become more than that. Uh, but all the diseases that we're going to talk about today are a little a little extreme, a little out there. Um, <laughs> so in case anybody is going to watch any of the movies today and is terrified by them, please don't be. Um, coronavirus is bad. We should all be taking this seriously, and we are. But... Um, the mortality rate for coronavirus is a fraction of a percent compared to these movies. It's about 2% for coronavirus. And uh, I think these movies range from something 100%? like 100%. Yeah. It's like, a, it's like 20, it's like 25% to like a hundred percent, which are all like world shattering yeah. diseases. Um, and all of them are a little ridiculous in their own way. Uh, everything and, and the one that isn't that ridiculous is almost swings too far the other way into being a little boring. But yeah, we will, Although we will, I will get say into the all parallels are eerie at times. Yes. Yeah. No, it, it brings up a lot of interesting points. But I think the big thing we're going to be looking at today, which will be interesting, will be um, that these are all movies that are made before the modern world has really experienced um a large scale pandemic where we all have to change yeah. the way we live for a little while. Uh, They're all conjecture. Now we're going to look at it afterwards. And then at the very end, uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about predictions about how this is going to change the movie industry and Hollywood itself, which by the way, if you're wondering is completely shut down right now. Um, I am holding on to my job, but just barely for the time being, uh, yeah. I'm going to stretch it out as long as I can. Um, but there's no production going on right now. There's some interesting stuff in the works that I can't talk about, but um, the way that Hollywood makes and releases the content that it makes is probably going to change forever because of this. And we're going to take a look back at the only, the most recent global pandemic, um, Spanish flu, which happened in 1918 uh, in a nascent film industry. And we're going to see how that affected the nascent film industry um, and essentially how it helped kind of helped to create the mega Hollywood of the twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, and that died in the sixties. Um, but before we get to all of that, let's talk about the films that we're going to talk about today. What are they, Jonathan? Yeah. So we're starting out with outbreak from 1995, which, uh, if Netflix hasn't convinced you to, uh, watch it yet, then, uh, we probably won't either. Um, yeah, everyone's <laughs> wearing Outbreak. Everyone's watching Outbreak right now. Yeah, it was uh, directed by uh, Wolfgang Peterson, and then we'll be following up. None of these really have awards, so we're kind of just 
setting them up. Uh, following that with Contagion from 2011, which seriously everyone is watching right now because it probably is the closest depiction of our current situation. Um, and that was from 2011, directed by Steven Soderbergh. And finally, we'll be wrapping up with Flu, or The Flu, depending on which website you're on. It's really inconsistent. Uh, from 2013, Korean film directed by Sung Soo Kim. And uh, it's, yeah, it's different. but It's a different a movie. Way. It's, it's much closer way. to uh, Train to Busan than uh, Even the other the host, two movies. I realized. Yes, yeah, no, very, very much yeah. so. Um, but let's start off with Outbreak from 1995 to discuss what that movie is about. Jason, take it away. Outbreak from 1995. Colonel Sam Daniels is an expert virologist in service of the U.S. military. He and his crew investigate the spread of a new disease in Zare, an incredibly infectious and deadly disease called Motaba. Thankfully, the disease isn't airborne and the site seems to be contained. Back home, Sam's marriage has fallen apart. His wife has moved to L.A. and taken his two dogs with her. Meanwhile, a mysterious monkey named Betsy is set loose from a research facility and seems to be spreading a strain of Motaba around a small town in California. As Sam rushes to investigate, seemingly against the wheel of those in power, he soon discovers that this is an airborne version of Motaba with a 100% fatality rate. Soon, the government is ready to destroy the town to prevent the devastation of the entire country. The fate of the world and Cedar Creek is on the line as Sam rushes to find the origin and cure for this doomsday virus. All right, Jonathan, I have to start off with what I'm most impressed about when it comes to this movie, and that has to be uh, the, the production design team. The production design team does, like, all of the, does the really heavy lifting in this movie, in my opinion. Like, the the sick uh, makeup is, is brilliant. All yeah. of the sets are done up really, really well. Um, like, the containment unions, the hazmat suits. They have, like, some different mm-hmm. hazmat set suits throughout the movie. A lot of them are maybe a little over the top, a little sci-fi. I don't think any practical uh, hazmat suit-making company would ever make a, a, a diagonal zipper. But, but none of know, them it, are rip-proof. It looks cool. None of them are rip-proof for some reason. I don't understand why. Um, and then apparently you spray it with like lemon pledge when it rips. Um, but they, I think honestly, that's the best part of this whole movie for me, because, uh, if you take a look at the rest of the movie and keeping in mind that, you know, they had gone through something like we're currently going through yet, Mm -hmm. it's basically kind of like a B movie. Like it's, it's, it's very much a disaster movie. It's pretty schlocky in a lot of parts and and yeah. goes into uh, territory that's almost a little farcical um, and you know like four or five months ago would have been like oh that's ridiculous but it's entertaining and now there is kind of an angle to it where it's like oh that's inaccurate and a little mean yeah and we we know for a fact how inaccurate it is yeah I feel like one of the interesting things watching this movie is you can almost tell that the studio didn't think a movie about an outbreak would sell. And so they just pumped it full of a bunch of uh, marketable points like the all-star cast and, um, you know, big action set pieces that nowadays, you know, with our current deal of just being locked at home, you know, people are thinking about so many uh, story ideas about people 
just sitting around and like how slow and, you know, honestly boring a pandemic is for those who aren't really affected. Uh, and then this is just like, it's so exciting. There's all like panic and riot and which we're going to see in, in all of these to varying degrees. But, uh, like I'm thinking about the, uh, the Hicks that try to shoot down a helicopter. Like, yeah, some of this stuff comes, goes, goes way, way over the top. Um, but it feels like the movie thought that without it, it wouldn't have been compelling enough. Yeah, yeah, no, it is not going for any sort of high drama. And in fact, the most dramatic, in the traditional sense of drama, the most dramatic storyline that we get is probably the, in my opinion, rather uncompelling um, marital drama that we get mixed in here. Uh, I have, so I don't know about you, Jonathan. I have no idea why these two were together in the first place. I have no idea why they broke up. I hardly know who Sam is as a character. Like he's he's. We all know what you think about the name Sam. I I have opinions, (laughs) Uh, but he's either like milk toast vanilla, like has no emotions, or he's like screaming his head off. Um, Yeah. Like like those are his two settings. He's both like described as a rebel and like a control freak at the same time, and I'm like, well, this character makes no sense. And yeah, no, I mean, it's almost it's almost a shame that. It's, it's weird that I'm going to complain about this, but it's almost a shame that in the first half hour of the movie, there's so much time spent on this, like, needless or uncompelling marital drama when it's like, well, people are being infected. Let's let's watch that. Let's watch this guy with the monkey, like, secretly yeah. infect the whole world on accident. Like, let's watch the interesting stuff. This stuff is not the, the Dustin Hoffman losing his wife for being uh, some kind of milk toast is not interesting well yeah and the other thing is uh that uh, another kind of thread that we're going to see except i think contagion actually does a decent job of avoiding this is that our our main kind of like human drama thrust all both coincidentally happen to be involved in some kind of health uh business that ends up being affected so he's part of the the military hospital medical unit uh and she's part of the cdc and so the fact that they're in a relationship and then this outbreak and so it kind of brings them together because they have to work together although they didn't really have difficulty working together um i kind of almost would have expected the fact that you know they've been going through this divorce and all this like having that dramatic of a relationship would interfere with the ability to cope with the outbreak and then, you know, putting more lives at jeopardy. But it was just kind of like, oh, okay, we're just working now. And we're also like semi bickering while we're working on this thing. Uh, yeah. So if you're going to do that kind of thing and put these two people in these important roles that relate to your plot and also have a conflict between them, that conflict should probably affect the plot in some way, which it doesn't here. Yeah. Yeah. Also, not to mention that her character almost makes all of her professional decisions based off of her relationship to Dustin Hoffman's character, which yeah. like if she's if she's good enough to get the head of the to be the head of the CDC, she would not be making a decision based on the fact that her ex-husband thinks it's a problem like that 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 would not be something that's happening at at a certain point in the movie she essentially gets a call from him and he's like hey there is 
a problem. We need to jump on this. And we've, as an audience, have seen that there's a problem. Um, and there's evidence that there's a problem. And she just kind of, like, waves it off. Of course, two scenes uh, later, she gets smacked in the face by it. Although I still don't know if that one guy who was with her ever finishes his french fries, which disturbs me. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's that's something we got to talk about. So we got to talk about the... Um, french fries? The No, the the contagion spreading montage, which is a staple of all these movies. Um, and so we, we kind of start with seeing the guy uh, who was handling the monkey be sick. And then he starts touching stuff and coughing on people. And then we get this montage of other people not feeling good, but being in public and coughing in people's faces and touching everything. Um, we get the movie theater scene, uh, which is kind of infamous right now. Um, as far yeah, as the, the movie guy. theater scene is a little like I get why it's there. It's a little silly <laughs> to me. There's there's yeah. a lot of people like this is so the disease they're fighting is called Motaba, and it is really strong, like unbelievably 100% strong. One hundred percent mortality. One hundred percent mortality rate, which uh, is insane. Actually, it's unthinkable. There, I so I, I looked I looked up. Uh, there aren't really any diseases like any viruses that have a hundred percent death rate. There are some with really high death rates. Um, one of the most deadly uh, diseases that you could even in a lifetime possibly remotely have a fraction of a fraction of percent of a chance of catching is uh, avian flu, which has like a 60% death rate. And we actually see that in flu, the movie yeah. that we're going to talk about today. Um, but the only things with a hundred percent death rate are like a brain eating amoeba, like there is no virus that yeah, which isn't even this. a virus. <laughs> yeah, this is this is a this is a fictionalized virus for sure. Um, anything, it one of the reasons that things that are this deadly don't spread that far is that they kill people so fast. And we see a lot of people essentially doing activities in this movie that if they truly were that sick, there's no way they'd be doing. Um, like yeah. the meta, like the medical researcher who like is an idiot and sticks his hand in the centrifuge and gets the uh, blood, the contaminated blood on him. And then oh, he's like, I feel terrible. Maybe I caught a disease. And uh, then he goes out on a date with his girlfriend uh, to a oh, movie yeah. theater while feeling like trash. And I'm like, you know, you know, you have a disease. You, so you this are not movie, that big of an idiot. Yeah. And this movie is the worst offender uh, when it comes to this other outbreak trope, which is, People knowing that they've been exposed and ignoring it and not telling anyone. People in the CDC, in the the uh, the military medical department, you know, knowing that their suit yeah, was the ripped or knowing that... The Christopher Plummer character literally gets infected. He's a doctor who... Uh, Alex won't say Kevin Spacey's name, so just translate Christopher Plummer to Kevin Spacey. We all know what I mean. <laughs> so he he's he's a professional doctor who works in essentially the military equivalent of the CDC. He rips his suit, believes he's been affected, and then hides it. I'm yeah. uh, like it adds drama, but there's no motivation for it. Um, which, he's not even course, like an evil character. He's he's one of the good guys. Yeah, yeah. He's not like nefarious in this movie, um, and. That's just one of those points where you have to remember what this movie's trying to be, and it's just trying to be a B movie entertainment film yeah. from nineteen ninety five. Um, it's not, 
in, in, in like a little, like a very undone genre. Like this is not a common genre at this point in time. And it really wasn't. And it will probably be in the next 10 to 20 years. Uh, right. But, but it yeah, it really keeps, wasn't at the time. It keeps using the action genre as a crutch when it thinks it's, it's lagging a little bit. So then you get the set piece of the Hicks fighting the hell. Actually, basically they just add helicopters whenever they think it's starting to lag. That actually uh, is like the, the, if you chart the minute mark of this movie against the number of helicopters in it, it rises exponentially. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, of the production budget went towards helicopters. I do um, not want to imagine their helicopter budget. <laughs> but it is one of those things where, like, even by the end of the movie, it's almost completely forgotten that it's about an outbreak. Um, and that's actually an issue that I have with all three of these movies is I I know that it sounds probably boring on paper. But right now, what I want to see from an outbreak movie is the recovery period. I want at least a little bit of like showing things starting to slowly get back to normal as opposed to it's just like there's this one like really big uh showdown at the end and then uh it's kind of over because they got the cure or whatever. Like they just get the cure and then the movie's over kind of a thing. Um Contagion it goes a little bit different direction, but there's still no real coming down period really so yeah I, that's just an interesting thing that i noticed in all three of these movies yeah um and i think this is this is a little bit slipping into overall notes but i think we both have ideas of what we really want to see out of uh pandemic themed movies in the future Going forward yeah um I, I think there will be action movies and disaster movies made from it but i think that'll take a few years uh for people to like get it out of their systems like once it's done nobody's gonna want to see schlocky fun about it yeah uh, and no one wants to seeing, be the first one to do it i feel like also yeah no 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 somebody will somebody will be that opportunist but uh nobody wants to be the first i think the interesting stuff will come out of the drama that we see told about the quieter stories around the pandemic about people who are stuck in self-isolation alone yeah. or with yeah. people who are like families that were, are on the edge verge of falling apart. And then suddenly they're stuck in isolation together. Almost There's like a million a, interesting personal stories you can do because essentially the entire human race right now is undergoing like an extreme social experiment of like, what if you have to be in this one place? Yeah. We're so used to being on the go, go, go all the time and being around and moving and constructing all of our social relationships around that idea that we go to work every day, that we come back, that we have this amount of time to see these people. And that has all been upended overnight and seeing the values and the personality change and the dramatic arcs that come out of people suddenly stuck in that isolation is what I think is going to make the best movies that come out of this experience. Yeah. And also, honestly, there's going to the, be some killer documentaries. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Uh, Cause there's so many stories to be told uh, on like several different angles, but I think that the best fictional example that I can think of that already exists, that kind of does that uh, isolation thing is 10 Cloverfield lane, which puts it in a sci-fi context, but you could almost just take all the sci-fi elements and turn them into a pandemic and the movie would work exactly the same. Um, 
but that's a, that's a discussion still, for a different It's still time, a little extreme compared to our current experience. Yeah, but it's the way to do it in, like, make a drama that uses, a, a drama thriller, to be fair, uh, that uses this, like, containment type of a thing. Because that's, a lot of the tension comes from the containment in that movie. I will say, let's kind of just hit this on all the different points as far as, uh, you know, where the disease comes from. So in this film, the disease comes from Africa and uh, it's carried by a monkey. Um, and okay, so it, it, this took me a couple watches to understand, Jonathan, what was going on here. Uh-huh. Um, that monkey was infected with the weaponized strain of the virus that was created in America in that testing facility where the monkey was being kept after it had come from Africa. It was it was infected with the standard Motaba, and then in the facility in America, it was infected with the weaponized Motaba. And it took me two watches to understand that that was what had happened. Okay, because I thought in the testing facility, they just had found a cure for a potential weaponized disease. No, but no, they no. They created the they disease had, and the cure in that lab? They, they created the cure to the original disease, and then right. they weaponized it. Okay, yeah. And gave it to the monkey. And then it um, mutated. That's the other thing that happens in all of these movies, is there's a mutation at some point that makes the original cure ineffective. Yes, yes. They are, there are new, they are new, or as, as the scientific term is called, novel versions of these uh, viruses, which makes them so dangerous because we don't have a pre-prepared response for them. Yeah. Um, but yes, the, the plot is really convoluted. <laughs> Um, it took me a while to understand. Uh, and then, of course, the I kind of get the villainous motivations for Morgan Freeman and Donald Sutherland. The political stuff gets so, like, so I convoluted. I kind of get it. But it, it, it is a bit of an extreme response to their situation, even. Like, it's... They, they could totally have worked with Dustin Hoffman and not revealed their involvement in... Uh, creating this weaponized strain of the virus. Yeah, and Morgan Freeman kind of has this like uh, change of heart thing, but you're still kind of confused on what he did and what he's changing his mind on. That it, it, none of it like really hits home very hard. Yeah, it does not. It does not hit home very well uh, in terms of that that plot. There's also that that weird line where Morgan Freeman like drops a word that bugs the living hell yeah, out of me. Yeah, that's right. He says, he, he's like, he's supposed to say, I believe, you do what I say you do, or I, you do what I say to do, or I, you do what I tell you to do, or something like that. But instead, yeah. he says, you say what I say do. Um, yeah. This is, it just sounds so ridiculous, especially coming from Morgan Freeman, who has such like a commanding presence just in yeah, general. It's, it's just, it's clearly like a bad take. And I don't know, why it was used um it it still upsets me a little bit that it was used <laughs> yeah but that's kind of a minor point um uh all right so well, anything in else your about book, it's minor oh uh, yeah that's true i mean in my I, book it's major i think at that point in the movie i was just you know not nitpicking anything because i'd kind of given up on it okay i suppose all right, well, let's move on to Contagion then from 2011. Jason set that one up for us. Contagion from 2011. A woman from Minneapolis dies of an unknown disease after a trip to Hong Kong. 
many people aboard the same plane or who spent time with her in Hong Kong, including her lover and her son, soon catch the disease and die as well. Her husband, Mitch, catches and survives the disease asymptomatically. Meanwhile, Dr. Ellis Cheever of the CDC and his field agent, Dr. Aaron Mears, work overtime trying to track and contain the spread of the disease. Their colleague, Dr. Ali Hextall, decodes the mutationist origins of the disease and starts work on a cure. In Hong Kong, WHO epidemiologist Dr. Leonara Orantes scores CCTV tapes of the Minneapolis visit, trying to track the source of the infection. As many cities are infected and succumb to fatality rates as high as 20 to 30 percent, many turn to online conspiracy theorist and conman Alan Crumweed, who slanders the CDC and champions the use of forsythia, a homeopathic cure. Normal life goes away and society seems on the verge of collapse as the virus, fear, and false information spread in this insightful look of what the experience of a pandemic could look like. All right, Jonathan. So when we're talking about this movie, we're going to kind of step into Which the we world are. of... We are. This is true. Um, we're kind of stepping into the world of one of the uh, auteur directors out there who we haven't talked a lot about Mm-hmm. Um, he's almost experimental a lot of times. He is very experimental. He likes to shoot a lot of his stuff with an iPhone, which upsets me. Um, but he also, like, isn't he the one who, uh, he like turned Raiders of the Lost Ark black and white as a, as a composition experiment? Uh, I don't know for sure. It sounds like something he would do. Um, and here's the thing. He has a really good eye. He's the cinematographer. Is, we're talking about Steven Soderbergh, by the way. I realize we haven't said his name yet. Yeah. Um, He's a very good cinematographer. He directs and does the cinematography on all of his films. And the cinematography in this movie, again, as well as the set direction, the visuals as a whole are very good. Um, there, uh, There's a lot of it that kind of pushes the bounds, you know, a lot of the flashbacks. Typically, you have a style on flashbacks in the movie. Mm-hmm. In this movie, they use, like, just a smearing of Vaseline over the lens for flashbacks. Split diopter effects. Yeah, split diopter things. effects. Um, the the suit that Jude Law's character wears is really unique and odd because um, he's a oh my really gosh. unique it and odd character. It took me an embarrassing long amount of time to realize that was Jude Law. Really? Yeah, I know. Was I, was it, like, was I it, know this guy, and then I was like, oh, of course, Jude Law. Was it his stupid hat? Yeah, it was I his hat, it. and his his accent was a little different from what early, I'm used to. Yeah, his hat early in the movie upset me. And then his spaceman outfit that we'll have to talk about later. I did. I did love that that outfit though. That was incredible. I liked that a lot. That was good. Um, but the cinematography in this movie is great. I feel like I understand where he's going with the entire idea of the movie, like where it's supposed to move. And the idea behind it is essentially like let's do a really realistic version. Of yeah, as realistic an as we can think of without having any. Uh, examples to go by like we do now yeah so i yeah. like like this movie would be completely different if it came out next year uh but for coming out basically he's basically trying to anticipate exactly what is happening right now and yeah it's interesting to see what he gets right and wrong as he goes through it yeah the um uh the writer actually did a, a is it has spoken out and well, he's been interviewed a lot recently. All the people who made these movies have been interviewed yeah, a seriously. lot recently, um, for obvious reasons. Uh, and, and he said he consulted a lot of, uh, disease experts and virologists on the subject before he wrote it. And it's, it's meant to be very realistic. And in that fact, 
it, it has a toned down quality to it um, where nobody's, well, for most of the movie, nobody's rioting in the street. Um, nobody is screaming or bleeding profusely. There's no monkeys until quite a way into the movie. <laughs> but um, they're a monkey. You know, it still has those absurd elements there. I keep wanting to say it, it knocks out all those crazy elements, but it really doesn't. It just keeps them a little toned down. Uh, yeah. But at the same time, for me, Jonathan, this movie is like so toned down that it kind of becomes boring. Yeah. Like there, and isn't, I think... there isn't a lot of connected personal drama in this movie. There's a little bit, mm-hmm. but we don't spend a lot of time on those topics. And then the 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 investigation storylines are either take really random turns. Like when, uh, the, like, I think she's, she's either South American or French. Um, but like, uh, Marion Cotillard. Or no, the, her character. Okay. Well, I think she was French. Just Uh, yes. The the French, (laughs) the French, the French doctor for the who, who was working in Southeast Asia during the, uh, during the pandemic, trying to track down where, patient zero got the disease in the first place um which is a really interesting storyline like putting a mystery in there is a really mm-hmm. interesting idea but she just gets like kidnapped partway through her storyline um and then gets like a and then stockholm like and then, syndrome yeah and the next scene we see her in she has yeah. complete stockholm syndrome which maybe that's genuine i don't know we don't get a I lot of time was, with a lot of these characters yes yeah. it is it, you're you're 100 correct correct it is interesting but we don't get enough time with nearly any of these characters to really feel compelled by yeah what's and going i think on. that was my big takeaway is i i was thinking if the whole movie was matt damon's story i think it would be way more interesting or you know even just pick any one of them like the the ensemble portion of it gives a broader picture but it also lessens the overall impact at the same time yeah and you know what? There's some really interesting, complicated characters in here who face interesting, complicated decisions. One of my favorite story beats is actually when um, uh, Lawrence Fishburne's character uh, ha- ha- like tells his, I think, girlfriend at the time uh, about the uh, pandemic at, before like official announcements to do certain things were announced, and then it got out that he had told her ahead of time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was a really personal decision that we understand why you would do something that that based so much on your personal interest. But at the same time, it feels wrong to be doing that when you're in a position where you need to be making decisions responsibly for the most good of the most people, yeah. um, which, which my is favorite, really an interesting take. Yeah. My, my favorite story beat is... Um, the bit where the CDC worker wakes up and realizes that she's infected and suddenly makes all the right decisions. She starts, she calls even the cleaning staff at the hotel that she's staying at. She calls Lawrence Fishburne. She says, and, and they're having this conversation. He's trying to reassure her, but she, you know, she's so involved with the study of this disease that she knows that she only has a couple days left. And, uh, she knows all the symptoms. She starts, you know, basically practically like writing her will right there in her hotel room. Um, and, uh, you know, it's one of those things where, especially coming off of, um, 
outbreak and seeing all the CDC people and the health workers, you know, try to cover it up and do this like weird pride thing. And then she's like, I know, I know what I have to do. I know that I'm not going to make it. Uh, and I've got to tell everyone that I can. And she starts recording all her symptoms, all that, like she just hits all this, all the right beats, but it's so somber because it's such an emotional realization followed by a very, uh, critical and professional response. Um, yeah. And I, I liked that moment a lot. Yeah, it, it is. Um, and and to to talk about the disease a little bit in this movie, it wasn't a guarantee that she'd die. Um, yeah, that's true. There is there is a there's only like a 20 percent death rate. But one of the things that we do see in the movie that we hear a lot about nowadays um, with the coronavirus is that once enough people start getting sick, the death rate has a tendency to go up um, because the care that is required to uh, take some of the cases from a fatal case to a survivable case is no longer available. Um, so th they like find a stadium, it becomes a mass hospital, soon outside yeah. there's a mass grave, um, you know, and she's behind that curve enough so that she is in the mass hospital and then from that point she's kind of doomed. Um, also that kind of makes all of her efforts earlier in the movie more noble. Um, which is, is just kind of goes to show that even when you're trying to portray something as realistically as possible, um, you are still bound to um, the, the necessities of drama, dramatic fictional storytelling. Mm -hmm. And to keep going about the, the disease itself, uh, we have the closest to the, the actual origins of, uh, of the disease that we're facing – which is that it came from uh, Hong Kong, technically, uh, and it was some kind of mix of bat and pig DNA, which I was kind of, I mean, we have SARS as a precedent with the, the bat DNA, um, and then our current one, if you're not aware, is a combination of bat and pangolin DNA. Uh, and so coming from this kind of like shady meat dealing in China slash Hong Kong, however you want to classify that, um, and then spreading from there just with poor hygiene, uh, was yeah, the, the pretty pig was definitely the, the pig that ate the fruit that the bat dropped, which is kind of, I'm going to be honest, a bit of a letdown in terms of a reveal. It's like, well, this doesn't matter at this point. Well, I think uh, it was a letdown because it was the last beat of the movie. This and is true. Yeah. It felt unsatisfactory at that point. Yeah. And it had no impact on the resolution. Like yeah. the fact that it came from from those animals had no doesn't matter impact anymore. on how they. We already how they basically figured that out. Yeah, it doesn't matter that you know, it doesn't matter seeing it once we've basically figured out where it came from. But I, yeah. I think that the other interesting thing about it being so close to that reality of it originating in China is that I feel like nowadays I don't know when, how this progression started, but there's no way that you could basically incriminate China for a world pandemic in a movie that you want to be profitable these days. Like uh, unless no, China happen. comes in and like salt creates the cure or solves it or something like that. Like the, the current Hollywood yeah, market is studio, so pandering to, yeah the, yeah, the current situation is so pandering towards Chinese culture and Chinese government and all that kind yeah, of stuff could, that you can't you could, do you, this anymore. You, Even you though it's accurate, it's so accurate. You couldn't you couldn't do a 
a major blockbuster that way. You could do a lower level movie where you're not hoping for a release in the Chinese market, but a lot of blockbusters these days are pretty much bound to try to get one of the berths in the Chinese market. Uh, yeah. Which is a bit silly because the the where the virus came from doesn't really matter to China or anyone else. Like, it shouldn't matter. It's just the virus yeah. happens. Um, and once it happens, it's everyone's responsibility to try to do the best they can with it, but does not matter where it comes from. It couldn't matter less. It's so the uh, bringing politics into a situation like this is silly, but as we've seen, that is what happens. Um, it is unavoidable, unavoidable. And in this movie, even we have a crazy demagogue, um, who is rallying people to a fake cure, which, uh, we've seen instances of in our current situation. Mm-hmm. Um, or unproven cures. I love uh, I love Jude Law's um, because this is 2011. Early 2000s were like big uh, blog era, right before you know YouTube and vlogging <laughs> he, really took off. He and used the he's term so, blogosphere. Yes, and he's so fixated on unique viewers. He says I have one million unique viewers on my site every day, and he says that term like three times, which sounds so outdated now. Um, it really I mean, does. technically, we still use the term unique viewers, but we don't use it as like a big kind of puff puff word. Um, but he was, yeah, the, the whole blogging thing. And then the guy, uh, the one scientist who takes a, sh- a stab at him and is like, you're not a writer. He's like, yes, I am. He's like, you're a blogger. That's not even journalism. And it was just like, OK, so we've got some hot takes going on here. Um, hot takes. Hot we takes. Got your hot hot takes. takes soup. Um. Man, that sounds familiar, Jonathan. So, yeah, Where'd Jude, that come Jude from? Jude Law's character was really interesting. That was a, that was an old outtake of yours, the hot take soup. I don't want that again. <laughs> oh, gosh. That was from a while ago. Uh, okay, so what did you think of the solution they found to the virus in this film? Because it, it feels a little unrealistic. I know it's based off of a real story where a guy proved that... Uh, ulcers were caused by bacteria and injected himself with the cure to test it. Oh, and that's right. I was trying to, to remember that what happened. Yeah. Uh, but it, it feels, it feels pretty abrupt to me. Uh, one, because I didn't notice this person as a character until, until the point where she's like yeah, injecting she's herself minor. and suddenly she has a dad in the hospital. I'm like, okay, that's not a bad character plot, but it would have been nice to have introduced that a while ago. Yeah. And maybe I missed it. But if I missed it, it's because there's so many characters that were hopping around between that there's not enough time to focus on the stuff that matters. Um, but she also, does bring the up fact that another her lab is the fact that her lab assistant is Dimitri Martin. It's weird. Yeah, I know that was that was kind of funny. Um, and I, I will say though that her her story beat that was interesting, like you said, except for the fact that it shows up so late and is so brief, um, brings up another trope of these movies that. Uh, and I think we're going to talk about it in overall, like how interesting it is that these movies are so tropey, even though the subgenre is so uh, small and niche right now. You would um, think they wouldn't be able to copy each other so well, but they do. But they all hit the same things. And one of them is that after she's injected herself with the uh, supposed cure, she sees her dad who's been infected. So, OK, she has a personal interest in the cure. Uh, but then she does the thing where she takes off her mask and uh, kisses his forehead and basically allows herself to be exposed to the virus because of her loved one. And that happens in 
all three of these movies. Dustin Hoffman does it in Outbreak, and uh, one of the military guys does it in The Flu, which was actually a really interesting moment. Oh, there's, 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 I have a lot of problems with the fact that the main guy in The Flu never gets infected. I'm like, he has <laughs> blood coughed on him like five times during the course of the movie, and somehow he's never infected. Yeah, well, he's the main character. The flu is, the flu gets a lot of passes just because of its the flu is style. a very different movie. Yeah, <laughs> it it is very accurately going for different kinds of drama, and because so every movie essentially has to go through a process of calling it shot and then following it. You have to set yeah. the tone of what kind of movie it's going to be early on, and then you have to deliver on that by the end of the movie, and. A lot of the a lot of the times that you don't like a movie or you, there's just something upsetting about the movie is because you think it's going to be one kind of movie at the start, and it's not that by the end. And I don't mean twists, because if it's going to be a twisty movie, you set up that there's twist in the movie early on. Right. It's just consistency. Uh, it's just consistency. So if there's inconsistency in the movie, that's what throws you and off. And I think that and, was one of the things about Outbreak is that it started as uh, an Outbreak movie and then it turned into an action movie. Yeah, it turned into an action movie with a nonsensical romance thrown in there. Yeah, so it didn't really know what it was, but Flu kind of knows what it is the whole time. Like, you don't expect the main characters to go through realistic challenges and stuff. You just expect them to pull through. Um, anyway, we're going to get to that in a second. Uh, but yeah, so that's that's one of those tropes is the, like, will, willingly exposing yourself to a loved one uh, who has the, the contagion. I think one thing that I do want to bring up as far as the another beat that usually happens is once the information gets out, it goes from panic buying to rioting so fast, which, yeah. you know, for a while I can I can hang with the panic buying because obviously we're seeing that. But so far, at least after, you know, three or four weeks of our current quarantine and shelter in place stuff, there hasn't been a lot of rioting. Which, uh, given all these I don't think movies, been any. rioting should have happened by now, and it should be widespread. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I haven't heard reports of any rioting. No, um, just I like people kind of, of arguing in the store, but no, like full blown rioting. I've heard reports of Italian mayors uh, flying uh, drones around with microphones on them, shouting obscenities at people who are going outside when they shouldn't be. I saw that in New York. There was a drone that said uh, it had some kind of really sci-fi script. It was like, please remain six feet apart. We must stop the spread of this virus. And uh, uh, it just York, kind of... New, New York is real bad. New York is in real bad shape. Yeah. Um, and if any... if The only... I think they might be one of the few places in the world, even at least kind of started to flatten their curve. Um, but... New York is one of those places that I think is going to come the closest to one of these type situations where there's just too many people in too close of an area. Um, it, it's too tightly packed. There's not enough people, not enough medical support, not enough supplies. And yeah. I think it's going to kind of like flu. Be, it'll, it'll be bad. It'll be very bad. Mm -hmm. But we still haven't seen rioting there, at least not from the news bits that I've seen. So that's just interesting that. You know, I want to see a lot of panic buying, but then once it turns into rioting and it turns into rioting so fast, that's when it loses me. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. No, that's that's fine. That's fair because it isn't really. 
like like it's a it's a worrying thing it's a scary thing but it doesn't become uh the kind of panic that inspires writing or it doesn't feel like writing is going to do any good yeah like it doesn't feel like a meaningful effort yeah and the thing that i always kind of like come back to in those types of scenes is it it almost makes me think of the dark knight rises whenever you know bane throws gotham into uh anarchy which you know has its own kind of plot deficiencies as far as uh time frame and all that kind of stuff but the the fact that in this movie where you're trying to be so realistic and then it turns into like full-blown like breakdown of any semblance of civilization uh you're like okay so we went from you know we're kind of going along realistically to almost apocalyptic levels of inhumanity on everyone's part like nobody is acting rationally uh, is is when it's like, okay, at this point, we know that that's not how it goes. And maybe if, I don't know, maybe if the mortality rate of COVID was higher, we would be more panicked. But it just doesn't seem like that is how, you know, people operate in a seemingly civilized society uh, in yeah, such a short no- period of time. There are, there are no ro- rampant house robberies going on like we see in Contagion. Um, yeah. There is there doesn't seem to be a breakdown of society. It's mostly like, at least in America, like m- in most areas, most people are kind of just stuck inside, f- trying mm-hmm. to find ways to entertain themselves. Um, so Alex, and, does and the even film, in Contagion, yeah. I would like to point out that there is there is uh, hoarding and rioting at the at the grocery store, and there's still toilet paper on the shelf. <laughs> they missed that one. Yeah, no one predicted that one. You know why? Because it's dumb. Because it's dumb. Uh, <laughs> and it prevents people from who actually need toilet paper now. Okay, it's, yeah. it doesn't matter. Everyone knows. Um, so, Alex, does this film resolve? Uh, kind of. Like, really slowly. Like, it, it's kind of like suddenly, like, she injects herself. Then it, they're like, oh, it's okay now. And then there's like a really slow not ending. Um, it doesn't really end. Like it almost does what I wanted to see where we kind of slowly, you know, people start to get cured and, you know, kind of see the skies clear. And but it doesn't really get there because we get to the point where uh, people are getting raffled off uh, cures. And then we get Matt Damon and his daughter's uh, quarantine prom which started mm-hmm. to be really interesting because we're seeing quarantine proms right this instant. And then it just kind of ended. And I was like, okay, yeah, so I guess like the point now, I guess the point is that that's the new normal, which I can kind of hang with, but it didn't even really make that point very strongly. No, no. And it is, it's, it's just a transition phase. Like it ends on a transition phase, which yeah. is upsetting because you know, if you want to make the last third of the movie, that like things getting back to normal that's fine but you have to end with whatever the new normal is um you can't end with people still locked in their house because that's not a resolution that's just part way through the resolution or you can end when there's a cure and everyone stops panicking because oh we're okay it'll be a while but we'll be okay yeah um you can end with one of those two but the the thing is that's not the new normal because eventually everyone will be inoculated so mm-hmm. we're just we're and just seeing you like pick the, yourself up you got to put the stores back together like all that stuff that we just don't we just kind of leave it in, hanging yeah like yeah it's just left hanging which is annoying yeah 
And then there's like an awkward scene where she's like, where the doctor who discovered it is like refusing her, refusing to like be acknowledged in the public eye or something. And it's like, okay, so she's just being more noble. Like, is that what we're doing? Uh, yeah. It doesn't no, seem noble to have character much of, is noble. Yeah. It doesn't seem to have much of a point beyond that. Like there's no arc to it. It's just another snippet. Like it feels like everything we're seeing in this movie is just parts of other movies around this pandemic that we're not really getting the full arc of, which is frustrating. Yeah. To and watch. everything was just interesting enough to want more of it, which, <laughs> you know, he did a good job of setting up all of these things and then not yeah, sometimes, fully sometimes going in on all of them. Good or any to of them. let people want more. Um, it's actually often times really good to leave people wanting more, but you do have to give them enough. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so Contagion is so close to being like a great, realistic, and entertaining pandemic movie, and it just barely falls short. I think that's yeah. kind of the takeaway. It might, and you know what? It might be because we are in the scenario right now. Yeah, that's right what now. I was thinking too, is our perspective is very subjective right now. And it could easily, it could easily become in the next few years, somebody does something like this again. But having lived through it, they can tell the story so much better. Yeah. Um, because essentially what we're looking at right now and it isn't really pa- pandemic films because the, you know, these generations, everybody who's alive right now hasn't experienced that before. Nobody yeah. who's alive right now was, well, there's some Except people Except for that one 104-year-old guy. There, there's some people who are old enough to have been around for Spanish flu, but if they were old enough, they were like babies. Yeah, so, right. Everybody around now doesn't really have the same connection to this. So these are sci-fi films. These are decidedly sci-fi films. These are fantasy films and worlds sci-fi that don't... Sci-fi slash dystopia. Yeah, that don't really exist. And now they do. So now the storytelling about it is going to tra- twist and change dramatically um, from this kind of storytelling to stuff that's a lot more realistic, whether it be the drama, the disaster, the intimate interpersonal storytelling... Uh, the personal growth, the complicated po- political angles uh, from all parts of the world. It'll be very different moving forward, hopefully. Or the uh, pulpy disaster film, like Flu. Or the pulpy disaster film. Uh, again, I think it'll be a long time before we see a pulpy dis- disaster film about these movies. Um, mm-hmm. It'll either be like five to six years, or it'll be one month. And I will explain why <laughs> at the end of this, at the, when we get to overall notes in the 1918 section, yeah. uh, but we're not there yet. So we're going to save it. So are you ready to move on to flu? Let's do it. All right, Jason, take it away. Flu from 2013. Emergency rescue team worker Jigu rescues contagion center doctor Inhei after her car falls down a mine shaft. He later fishes her purse out as well, returns it to Inhei's daughter, Miru. Jigu is clearly interested in Inhei and ends up striking an odd but genuine friendship with Miru. Meanwhile, brothers Byungwu and Byungki, who are smugglers, open up a shipping crate to find a group of dead illegal immigrants. A lone survivor of the disease that killed the immigrants escapes the container, but Byungwu is infected in the process. Byungwu goes to a clinic for medicine where his coughs infect several people who in turn start infecting the rest of the city. Byungwu dies soon after. The disease, a strain of H5-1N, or bird flu, is identified by Inhei and her team as a new mutation of the disease that can kill in 36 hours. The infection spreads rapidly, and soon the entire city is locked down and quarantined, leaving Inhei 
Miru, and Jigu separated and stuck contending with panicked civilians, the military enforcement, and the government's plans to destroy the city to save the country. What's more, Miru is infected with the disease, and they'll need to find that escaped survivor of the shipping crate to make a functional blood serum cure. All right, Jonathan, so when we look at the flu, um, I think there there is some interpersonal drama here, but it is very clearly set up as and is a drama within a very or drama within a very genre film. It is very much meant to be um, fast-paced action, uh, apocalypse, exciting. exciting, driven. The characters kind of follow that. They're like pretty slapsticky. Um, you know, there's some interesting dramatic story beats that are all motivated within there. Um, mm-hmm. I like that our our guy who you think is patient zero, he's not really. Um, he survives the the disease. Actually, he's the only one in a like shipping container full of immigrants who are like being brought in by the South Korean equivalent of coyotes um, into the country who yeah. survives the disease within the crate, which is just horrific. Um, but he's essentially the guy with the the blood immunity to the disease who we were following throughout the film. And then the um, the two smugglers, who one of whom just refuses to die for most of the movie, which is just crazy. Red Jacket guy makes because it the entire thing. Because he has to cause all the problems in the whole thing. It's crazy. I was just impressed that he wasn't dead <laughs> by, yeah. by, by the time we got to the end of the movie. You've got That's your crazy. right, because he was with his brother, like... As his brother was uh, showing all the symptoms. Yeah, yeah. You've got um, you've got your uh, crazy uh, apocalyptic prophet uh, character in here who is also in Train to Busan. I would say they did a pretty good job of uh, distinguishing all the characters. I didn't. Get oh yeah, no, the costumes used hardly really well done. We, yeah. You've got your you've got your hero who's in. Um, who's in, like, his rescue gear the entire time. You've got the doctor who's conveniently in a lab coat the entire time, and they, they give just enough explanation so it's okay that the doctor's running around in the lab coat the entire time. And then, of course, <laughs> you have the little kid who is the little kid. She's um, so good. Can we just, like, talk about her oh, no, she's a, a fantastic actress. Sometimes, you know what, sometimes uh, little kid actors are just annoying, but she is really good. At playing she felt convincing. so mature for her age, and yeah. Uh, yeah, she like understood the character. She understood the situation. Like when they threw her in the most dramatic of of parts, like she was really emotional. She was funny, and uh, she. I think more than that, she just has like this watchability that you know people talk about sometimes with actors that is kind of hard to uh, objectively describe but she just has this like quality that makes you root for her which is what makes her storyline work so well you know as overblown as it is like you still care about it and you're into it because once you've kind of gotten into the movie you know that this is over the top you're not expecting Soderbergh level of realism or any of that so you can kind of just go along with whatever the movie wants to throw at you and one of the things is putting this little girl in a ton of peril and you're just all for it. Yeah. Yeah. No. And she's really convincing. And you know what? That main triad of characters, the rescue worker, the single mother doctor and her daughter are a fantastic set of characters. One, they're set up, they're human. They're all failable Mm -hmm. in some way, but they're also all compelling. Like you feel willing to root for them. 
I almost in did theory, it with the like mom at first because she was a little annoying after she got rescued the first time. Yeah, she was uh, she was a little bit belligerent, but it was mostly played for humor, and I think that's where that was coming from. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and and it was kind of nice to not have her be too swoony either off the off the get go, um, which made sense. Like nobody's friends right away in this movie, and they all kind of become friends accidentally. But the mm-hmm. way they become friends, as odd as it is, like you know the rescue worker rescues her, then she's left her bag in the hole, so he has to go back find her bag, finds her phone. Her daughter calls the phone. Her daughter, who I don't know what she's doing during the day while her mother's off at work at um, school. I assumed they she well she's she met at the school. guy. And then somehow and somehow they they meet at school and then she just goes off with this dude. Thankfully, he's like a genuinely nice, nice dude. Like Mm -hmm. he is a a caring guy. He is clearly interested in the mother. Um, But she says, I'm not supposed to get in a car with strangers. So they like acknowledge all of that throughout. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But they actually they actually strike up a friendship um, that is compelling. And, you know, the there's a minute later in the film where. Uh, they're being separated. Uh, the mother has found out that the little girl is sick and she is hiding it because she doesn't want her to be taken away. Uh, part of that trope again with Kevin Spacey. Yes, part of that, part, part of that trope again. Um, but uh, she, the, the little girl's very upset that she's being kept away from the rescue guy as well. Um, and it makes sense that she's upset. When they've developed that that kind of like, you know, newer friendship but also too he's like spends once everything goes crazy at the store he saves her like three or four times between like the the mall and then the the super shopping center where they meet up with the mom again he saves her repeatedly um over and over and over and so it's like okay yeah no i totally understand why this this little girl's like i like that guy i want him around yeah right (laughs) he is he is nice and he keeps saving me (laughs) i I want to keep him around I will say about the rescue guy is that his his thing of always saving the people in distress because he's part of the rescue response team like kind of worked but also got to like foolhardy levels at some point like letting oh, all the 100%. people out of the mall that was being quarantined because there was an outbreak in there granted she was part of that uh but um was like okay maybe they you know maybe they should just stay in there because that's protocol and then he just like breaks them all out he does um Um, he also gets blood coughed on him like three times during the entirety of like the the blood the mall escape yeah Um, and no one wears like well i guess they they actually actually, are wearing masks a lot a lot of the time this one probably the most the moment on the roof where the all of the doctors are wearing masks but they keep taking it off um, to, oh, to deliver the their thing. lines. That's, that's the that's thing with thing. this movie. They keep taking it off, which makes sense from like a movie standpoint because you need to see like the entirety of the face to really emote. But at the yeah. same time, you're like, okay, you're the disease expert. You literally discovered this new, more deadly version of this disease and you're taking your mask off? I think that's another thing that if we watch this at a different time, we might have just completely ignored the mask thing. But right now, masks and gloves are being like, so hyped and yeah, you know they're fashion, in such man. high they're in such high demand they're you know even being turned into jokes and fashion and all that kind of stuff that like we're so fixated on the mass and the protective gear like in outbreak there are so many times when the medical professionals are treating people without any of that on sometimes they're in full hazmat suits but if they're not in full hazmat suits they're not wearing masks or gloves 
Um, and then, yeah, in flu, they would constantly, not just the medical people, but everyone, if they had a dramatic line to say, they would just rip their mask off. It's like taking off the glasses in an action movie. Um, yeah. And it, it just like, got to be like really effect. distracting. Yeah, it was it was a little disingenuous. I get why they did it. I also get why hazmat suits are appealing. One, they're striking visually. And two, yeah. you get you still get to see the entirety of the actor's face which is nice and typically what you're going for with camera work and, you know, all of movie making is to see that face, which is, you know, where you get emotion, Mm -hmm. where you get, where you really communicate. You want to be able to see the actor's eyes um, and hopefully the rest of their face as well. So I understand why they did it, but also it seemed a little ridiculous. Um, Of course, the whole movie is ridiculous uh, and it does in the best way possible. I really enjoyed this. (laughs) And you know what I did too. And part of the reason is, is the whole thing throughout all of the departments all the levels of movie making knew that there was a little bit of tongue-in-cheek to this whole movie yeah Um, like the color palette is bright which is one of the things that i actually really appreciate about this movie one we actually do use bright colors outside all the time everywhere we like we like to paint things bright superstores have bright colors in them they have lots of whites in them malls have bright colors in them they're not this dense dark color palette it's not like the world suddenly um, turns gray when they do like the essentially concentration camps and they have the huge like work lights that are just like so blue and bright, like that's still fairly accurate to like, you know, construction level work lamps. Yeah. Yeah. It adds a lot of visual flair to the movie and it makes it feel more poppy, which is nice because that's what this movie is. Um, it also, even all the the hanging plastic worked on an aesthetic level. It did. It did. And, uh, you know, the, the bright colors really remind me the most of Train to Busan, which also had a really bright color palette. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of connected me to that movie a bit. Of course, this is just kind of like a slight alteration, really, on what Train to Busan is. Um, because all these movies are like, they're literally one step below zombie movies. Yeah, right. Like, And, and that's, that's, the, that's the closest thing. That's the palette they're probably going off of is outbreaks in zombie movies um, because they didn't have a real-world example otherwise. Not that we had real-world zombies um, (laughs) yet, but, you know, we didn't have anything else to go on from a genre standpoint, so that's what we got. Still waiting on the the mutation plot point in our real-life situation. Uh, Hopefully not. I I kind (laughs) of doubt it. I I, I know they can mutate fast. I know there's different strains of the coronavirus out there, um, but I don't think with the current quarantine we have in effect that it will mutate as fast yeah um so let's let's hope and and mostly let's just hope not yeah right no kidding um Um, and again jonathan we do get the trope in here of someone having to make an extreme choice about whether or not to like essentially nuke the city or let the let the people live um, yeah. That and so gets, I, okay. So I, I, I think that is an interesting challenge to throw at characters. You know, can you, do you have, it, it's, it's like the, the train tra- thing, right? It's the, it's, it's the, the trolley question. Yeah. yeah. And, and we all, you know, the trolley question, question, right, Jonathan. And for those of you who don't, the trolley, uh, conundrum is essentially, you see a, you are near a switch on a set of trolley tracks the trolley currently the trolley is headed towards five people who are currently tied to the tracks. 
There's no way to stop the trolley except to pull the lever and send it on a different track. On that different track, one person is tied up. What do you do? Do you take no action? Do you take the action? Um, and it, it's essentially, you know, greater good or yeah. versus lesser like a quarter evil of type all question. Star Trek uh, episodes revolve around this. Essentially, essentially. And here's the problem I have with with this type of question in these movies is that there's always something that alleviates the painful decision making. There is never a consequence in these movies to making the decision to spare the city. The one because person never dies. The the one person never dies. Because in, in in these scenarios, there's always something that gives you an out. Because the thing they're worried about is that if it gets out of the city, and in fact, by the end of this movie, there's like a, one guy who's become the, who we actually talked about earlier, whose name I cannot find for the life of me. It's driving me nuts. Um, who has made himself essentially the prophet of the apocalypse and wants to take everybody from this city and go infect Seoul, which is the capital oh, of South yeah. Korea. He's like, let's go infect Seoul. Ah, it's the apocalypse. Um, and he was like the head of the rescue response team or something. And he tried to hide that he was infected for a long time. Yes. So he, so essentially they want to go infect the rest of the world, as many people as they can. And, you know, essentially, it, which is a little extreme, but there's always but a it risk was a fun, in this situation. It was a fun moment. Which is true, but to get back to the, the, the philosophical question, there's always a risk that doing something this compassionate and a very real risk, not a tiny risk, a very real risk, that doing something uh, like leaving these people alive in their city might cause thousands or millions of other people to die. And there's always something that gets them out of the philosophical question to make the decision of letting of sparing the city seem like the just and right one which i'm not saying it's not i'm just saying there's always something in it as an out in this yeah. one they develop a serum and in outbreak they find uh they find the carrier animal and they develop a serum yeah. um but in the situation but these movies never have uh never have it be okay but what if what if they did make that decision leave this people alone, let them have their rights, let them live in peace as they die, and then they affect the rest of the world, and then they die. They never show that level of the philosophy. There's always, like, this out that takes you out of the drama of that question, which is kind of why I don't like it being brought up. Because if you're going to bring it up, actually have it be a hard question. Yeah, follow through. Actually yeah. give that gut punch. In this movie, it kind of makes sense because it's lighter and it's slapstickier, and it's kind of, you know, this hard genre. Uh, B-movie, past the point where B-movies were really B-movies, uh, now they're just genre films, they're blockbusters, mm-hmm. um, where this is just fun. So I get why they have this out here, and they wanted to give this political level of drama in the background where the president is uh, having this discussion with this international representative. A um, fake British guy. But, you know... It, when when that's an actual question there has to be if you're actually going to bring that question up in a very dramatic film you have to give a hard answer to it one yeah. way or the other and and support your 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 stance through your cinematic rhetoric uh don't just give it like an easy out at the 11th hour which i think is one of the things that again makes the political angle the least interesting of these movies and why i think it, going forward, that's going to be much less of the focus. Uh, like it's going to be background noise to the more personal stories uh, when we 
<laughs> inevitably come back to this type of a, a genre in the future. Um, but I will say that that the moment of the little girl running and crossing the line to her mother was like it was it was a nice moment once we get there and once you've kind of been invested in the world. Um, and that image of her standing in front of of her mom, like between her and the machine guns was like, you know, reminds you of the uh, the Tiananmen Square tank man kind of a like that kind of an image that they built and i was like that's that's a really nice moment especially since we're so invested in in mira to begin with the little girl um yeah so that was that was really nice on just kind of like a visual emotional level yeah no it's it's an excellent climax to the film it's dramatic um the characters make bad decisions over the course of the film and face up to their consequences then they have to change and um, correct their mistakes, and that's how they they, they solve things. Um, the CG is a little rough in this yeah. movie at times, but they don't is, lean on it too heavily. Yeah, it's not it's not a selling point of the movie, so it's not like oh that's a really bad CG movie. It's like oh that's a disaster movie has some CG in it, not the best CG, but that's no. okay. You want to know what the uh, what what was the most striking image of the movie to you because there's one scene that was like wow i did not expect this to go that extreme mm-hmm. i don't know i kind of like the uh the scene in the there there's like this p- big wide panning shot in the supermarket where the swat team is coming and they're just beating people yeah. back swat showed up uh, real fast the though um they really did uh, well, that, that was that was a really interesting scene, just because it showed you. There was essentially like a line across the image between normalcy, yeah, in the far reaches of the store, and the panic in the other parts of the store that you could and really scene, see clearly delineated. That scene was again the panic buying turning into rioting immediately that we saw in Contagion. Um, but the the moment that I'm thinking of is the shot of the crane full of body bags oh in the gosh arena. yeah that's right that's right it's almost so unreal that i forget that's in the movie yeah but it was like very striking regardless of how over the top it was um and it's one of those things that again just kind of like puts it on the level of almost a godzilla movie is what i kept coming back to like it's it's a monster movie it's over the top like almost to the level of campiness actually it's past the level of campiness at a lot of points no it's campy it's it's, it's campy yeah there's <laughs> but no campy question about in, in a good fun way and it doesn't feel so cheesy um as just like over the top almost like it's like a rung below bollywood almost uh as far as the the action um but that yeah, just that wide of all the body bags in the arena being torched was like, all right, so that's the level that this movie is going to. And you kind of almost expect it to get there based on all of the elements that they have been leading up to. Yeah. No, you expect it to go that bad. And that's when you see how high the death rate really is in the movie. Um, but that's which, the thing is that of course, not all those people were high. dead. Oh yeah, Which that's right. They were just the burning all the bodies. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, yep. That's the flu. That's the flu. Um, so yeah, let's get into overall because I feel like we're gonna have 
a pretty big this is gonna uh, be a, overall a, a conversation. Big overall conversation. We've got like six <laughs> things to talk about here. Um, so let's let's start with the thing that's most focused on uh, this movie, Jonathan. And I know one of the things that bugged you was uh, people willingly being infected by their loved ones repeatedly as like a trope in this mm-hmm. movie, or just the fact that there could be tropes in. A, yeah, such a just, small genre it's crazy we've been hitting on like all of them but uh yeah that is one of them um in the flu they they have the interesting moment of the military guy who sees his mom and he was like oh you yeah know, that's right that was he that has was, that pivot so there's that pivot it was a bit of a ridiculous scene it was a little over the top but it was kind of like an oddly well fleshed out and set up like subplot like they, yeah. they planted it like a couple scenes before and then within one scene it was like a scene study almost of like oh both these characters have motivations there's a mm-hmm. mom character everything they do makes sense it's crazy it's absurd but i get given the situation why they're doing these things it yeah. was strangely enjoyable uh except for the part that the tropes were so weird yeah and i think that's the thing with with the flu is that the enjoyability and the entertainment value kind of overcame a lot of the incredulousness in a way that like outbreak didn't. But yeah, there's, there's a very clear idea from the very start of the movie when you see this woman has somehow driven herself into this hole, which (laughs) is never explained. Um, I just realized that it was never explained. It was never explained, man. Uh, that, um, you just know, like, okay, this is going to be strange. This is going to be odd. Some things are maybe not going to make sense, but this is the world we're in. Um, and and that's okay, because it's set up that way. Whereas in other movies, uh, people making that same decision doesn't make nearly as much sense. Um, like an outbreak where the, the tone can't make up its mind what the heck it is. Yeah. Um, or in Contagion, where... Uh, I don't know. Characters are introduced and then suddenly have a major plot point two seconds later. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that kind of goes into uh, the next point about like the different the the varying levels of the like actual focus on the plague. Like, I think we've been kind of getting to the point that outbreak doesn't really care about the outbreak in the film. It just no, 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 cares no. about whatever the most entertaining thing that they can bring up is. Contagion cares a lot about the contagion that like it spends most of the film focusing on that. And the flu focuses on the flu for a good portion, but I still think it hits that outbreak level of turning into a big action flick by the end when you get the the helicopter or the the fighter jets coming in and being threatened to be shot out of the air. And there's still this big political toe to toe. Um, and, yeah. uh, so it's like, there's, there are these different levels of how much the, the plague itself actually matters to the movie. Um, and I honestly, I think if now that we're talking more about like going forward, I think that the plague may still sort of take a backseat, but it may be just kind of this ever-present background threat to these human dramas. Because I think the point that we're getting to is, like, all the big... Th- these are not going to be big action action set-piece movies going forward. They're going to be very intimate human drama stories that... Yeah, they might be large ensembles with, a, with political angles, but they will be very personal. Yeah, yeah, and those... The big political angle... The good ones will be. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so yeah, the, I mean, even at that point, if it's just like the plague has forced us all indoors, here's a story of this family, you know, whatever happened to them because they couldn't leave their house, uh, you know, then it, it still won't be that much about the outbreak itself. Or maybe it's, you know, halfway through the film, someone really important to the story or our emotional gets infected and then we have to watch their deterioration or something along those lines. Uh, but yeah. it's not going to be a, oh my gosh, once you get this, you die in two days. Unless it's like literally about the plague, which is kind of one of the things that I'm thinking is a way to get around the gimmickiness of making a COVID movie specifically would be to make a period piece movie about one of the plague outbreaks in Europe and oh man, with with like Venetian plague mask, that'd be tight. Yeah, I'd watch and that. then that'd be you super do cool. something that you know is realistic to the time period, and yet has a lot of parallels to our current situation. I feel like that's going to be a really would be an interesting way to get around making an opportunistic COVID movie. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure, that would be that would be pretty cool. Um, and there's been, I mean, there's been plague outbreaks in medieval Europe. That's the most famous one. There's also been plague outbreaks in, you know, late Renaissance Europe, uh, mm -hmm. late classical age, early classical age in China, in Egypt, in Rome, all over the place for, for most of the current. Uh, and yet I era. can't think of a single plague movie. I'm shocked there isn't. Well, there's got to be one out there about like the plague. I bet there's like a schlocky 60s yeah, or 70s. But there's not one that like comes to mind that has big name actors like these movies, you know? Yeah, which is a little surprising, but I feel like it's not far off. If someone want, if someone wanted to take that angle and did it really well, like you know, I would be so down for that. That'd be pretty cool, man. It would be a very interesting angle on the film, and it would be a way to have fun with it without like bringing it too close to home. It'd be a little tongue in cheek. Mm -hmm. um, it might be a but little, but it could still be very dramatic. It could be very somber because I mean the yeah. plague is way more. Uh, obviously deadly than our, our current situation so you can you can still go to some of those extremes without leaving the realm of realism yeah and I mean even the bubonic plague um, which is the black death that you are currently talking about Jonathan mm -hmm. um, is still a thing it is incredibly rare and it is if caught incredibly treatable um, yeah because we have germ theory now yeah <laughs> so for one thing in, in case in case you're wondering what came before germ theory or what germ theory is germ theory is the idea which seems really obvious to all of us now because we grew up with it that diseases can come from micro uh microscopic uh living organisms known as either bacterium or questionably on the fence about whether or not they're alive or not viruses um or there's some fungal based ones as well uh, but that those can spread between people through things like coughing or handshaking um, or, you know, bodily fluids or something like that. Uh, and you can get infected with the disease that way. Before that, there was the miasma theory, which essentially believes that you got sick if you breathed bad air, which is where a lot of and some homeopathic um, yeah. treatments still come from this. Uh and it's like the idea that if you breathe certain types of air or certain incense or certain spices or certain scents in the air, it can make you sick or it can make you healthy. Um, 
and that's what we had until relatively recently in you know modern history and that's why like in dracula they keep opening the freaking window (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's true whenever everyone gets sick yeah yeah which which to us makes no sense it's like why would you do that that makes what the air shouldn't affect this but to them they're like ah well it's bad air that's keeping her sick we need to get some fresh air and make her feel better um which is why her maid and various people keep opening the gosh darn window so on this topic, Alex, uh, I've I just finished listening through a book called A Journal of the Plague Year by Daniel Defoe, which is about the um, 1665 or something uh, plague in London that affected like all of London, but wasn't too widespread other than that. Um, and there's a bit in here where he's talking about the medicine because he was definitely of the opinion that it was, you know, through smells and through the air and that kind of thing. But he has this one line where he says, he's talking about other people's theories about where the plague comes from. He says, I have heard it was the opinion of others that it might be distinguished by the parties breathing upon a piece of glass where the the breath condensing, there might living creatures be seen by a microscope of strange, monstrous, and frightening shapes such as dragons, snakes, serpents, and devils, horrible to behold. But this I very much question the truth of, and we had no microscopes at the time, as I remember, to make the experiment with. Which is an incredibly accurate description of what viruses look like. Yeah, no, that's exactly, that, that's a virus. Um, so they were getting there. But yeah, it, it, it took, no one it believed took some it. Time. <laughs> it took some time. Um, but yeah, all right, so... What else should we talk about when it comes to plagues on film? Well, one of the things that we have to talk about, Jonathan, is its current effect on not or, or not necessarily what movies are going to come out of this, but what what movies can industri- come out of what, this. What the what the industry is going to look like coming out of yeah, this. Yeah, right. So, just to give you kind of guys kind of a situation report of what's going on right now in Hollywood. The Inside short answer is by Alex Geringer on so, Hollywood. The short answer is nothing. Um, it's a little more complicated than that, but essentially nothing. Everything's on hold. There are no productions going on right now. Sets are busy places where people come and go all the time. You're in close quarters. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody's like eating from the same table at craft services. It's a it's a bountiful place if you're a virus, if you want to infect a bunch of people. Um, so currently nothing is is being made. Not to uh, mention actors still, having to touch each other just to maintain yeah, just a semblance do, of normal acting, of living. Yeah. Well, who knows? Maybe normal acting in a year from now will be everyone standing six feet apart. Um, Green that, screens are going to become very happen. popular. Uh, I've I, I've heard uh, talk about trying to make some stuff from home. For some, some people are trying to do some more adventurous stuff out there. I've seen some stuff online about that. Um, that could be interesting, but I, I don't know how soon that'll come to fruition or what that'll even be like. We've even I'm seen, sure Soderbergh's like, got something in the works. He's probably filming himself right now. Uh, there's probably some. Uh, there, there's probably there, well, actually, there already is a lot of uh, live shows, daytime television or night shows that are just recording from home right now. Yeah, because it was already just their host. So they're just Conan, working from home. Fallon, Kimmel, like everyone is just yeah. zooming zooming everyone because <laughs> you can still yeah, just, do interviews and honestly that's what uh you know internet content like Rhett and link have been doing for years basically 
And uh, I feel like this might make a bunch of people realize that they can get the same entertainment online for free uh, that they can like yeah. watching actual television. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, there is definitely a lot of uh, speculation about when uh, Hollywood will come back online. We have predictions and we have hopes, although uh, nothing is certain right now. Um, uh, essentially, a lot of people are hoping that sometime in the summer, whether it be mid or late summer, that we can get back to work in some regard. Uh, there are certain thing, benchmarks that would have to be cleared. Uh, the first one would essentially be a quick, easy test so that we can see who has it and who has had it and who hasn't had it. Yeah. Um, even if you can just uh, assemble a workforce of people who already have it, had it and have their immunity built up already, that would be amazing. That would be great. Um, but that's not going on. But the big thing that we really need to talk about is, the, is what Universal did. No other movie studio has done it yet, but Universal has done it. And that is all of their movies that were already in theaters or that were about to be released in theaters, they released on demand. Um, most of them I've seen pop up through Amp for rental through Amazon. I'm sure they're, they might be available in some other places. Um, but I think essentially there was a little bit of an outcry of, of some of that, like through iTunes, invisible man, uh, was like $20 to rent, which uh -huh. is normally what you pay to buy a digital copy. Yes. So people were true. kind of upset about that. It's not that far off from what you pay for a ticket price either. And that's part of it being a newer system. Nobody knows how to freaking price this. Yeah. Uh, it'll it'll change. But for the past five to ten years or so, since streaming has really become a thing, it, theaters, theater chains like your AMC have essentially had a 90-day lock on releases uh, from major studios. So if you release in a theater – uh, it is in that theater for 90 days before it is available online um, for rental. And now there has been, obviously, over the past few years, a lot of movies, some of the major movies that are released on Netflix immediately or Amazon yeah. Prime immediately and available. But it, the, the old studios were still releasing through theaters first. And the theory is that... The longer this goes on, the more likely other studios are going to switch to the universal format. Um, and the more studios that do so, the more likely it is that that will become the new normal. Which, to be honest, is kind of how uh, the world of movie watching was moving in the first place. The people who go to theater still, outside of a few major events like Avengers. Uh, are the people or, who haven't seen Marvel. <laughs> or, or, or the people who haven't seen Outbreak, they are the people who go to movie theaters anyway. They are the people like me or Jonathan who like to go to Alamo Draft House or uh, your Arc Lights, your nicer theaters that are kind of like an experience. You're going to go sit in a dark theater, see it on a large screen. You care about it. Those theaters are the ones that haven't been as affected by the changes to streaming over the past uh, few years. Um, because their clientele are the ones who are going out to see movies anyway because they wanted an experience in a movie theater. And I think those will stick around. That's just my personal prediction because I do think some people will want to go see them. Also, those theaters aren't just about new releases. Both Arclight and, um, and Alamo do either end of the release spectrum. Some of them do early releases with special events because uh, a lot of auteur directors love those places like the Cinerama Dome here in LA last year I got to see uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a bit early 
and Quentin Tarantino was there to talk about it. Um, those events kinds of events will still happen in theaters or the, um, the kind of like nostalgia driven events or the older movies where essentially Alamo draft house will for a week, like condense all of their, um, I, I remember I saw like all of the Burt Reynolds movies in like a week, uh, one time when they were all programmed oh at the Alamo draft house in uh, New York. Uh, just a whole bunch of them, including Cannonball Run, which was not as good as I thought it was going to be, but a lot of the other <laughs> ones were pretty good. Um, and those things are fun, but those are events that will stick around. People who want to go for the movie theater experience. Mm-hmm. For your average consumer who pretty much waits for stuff to come out anyway to rent it if they're going to watch it at all, I think stuff is going to move primarily to being released on streaming services. And I think this is... Uh, it, this is certainly not the beginning, but this is it's another just accelerating. Step, this is another step in the end of your uh, sticky floor, uh, big box movie theaters like AMC, yeah. um, which is on one level a little sad, but also like just going to AMC over the past few years compared to when I went as a kid. It, it's just so different. Like everybody there, there's nobody there anymore. Unless it was a big release day, like a Marvel movie was dropping. There was nobody there anymore. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of headed that way already. Now, of course, um, one of the things that means is that we are, and this has been a discussion since like 2010, 2011, that we are now fully, we would fully be in, uh, a violation of the Paramount Agreement, which we've talked about many times before on the podcast, Jonathan. Um, the Paramount Agreement uh, mm-hmm. or decision essentially being that um, major Hollywood studios had to dissolve their complete vertical integration of the industry, vertical integration being the uh, means of owning the production, distribution, and exhibition of movies. You can't own all of those. That's too much of a monopoly. That exhibition was was given away to, to other change, that's when you stop seeing like your Universal Theaters or your Paramount Theaters and you start having your AMCs and other movie chains like that. And nowadays, we have, uh, with if this, if this becomes the change in the industry where they're just releasing at home again on their, uh, their services like Amazon, Hulu, Disney+, Netflix that are all owned by these conglomerates, that is vertical integration once more. That is a monopoly... Uh, if it wasn't already, that is super Hollywood remade. That is the studio system reincarnate. Yeah. And I think that there's a difference in one of the articles that you sent me uh, this week that I'll link to in the blog post. Um, there was an interesting like single line about how one difference is that uh, gen- not entirely, but for the most part, streaming services don't, uh, require that much capital. Like it takes a lot of money to build a movie theater chain, which excludes smaller uh, companies from being able to do that. Whereas with streaming service, it's it's not as difficult to create a streaming service for your own company. But the other thing is that not every yet anyway, not every um, content company has their own streaming service so like netflix is pulling content from a bunch of other uh uh, sources i mean they're working towards getting their own uh you know putting out mostly netflix original content and obviously disney now is just putting out their content but you know there is still 
a range of of that content, like of of these sites that are getting content from other uh, production companies. And so there there's like a lot of technicalities, and it's it's just really messy. But people are going to have to start putting some hard lines on that really really soon. Yeah, yeah, and everybody who doesn't have a, a streaming service right now has said for years that they're currently trying to develop one. Warner Brothers yeah. is trying to develop one. That's what happened to Filmstruck. Um, yeah, exactly. They they went away because they wanted to pull their their library back for a streaming service. Universal is working on one. Some of them already have berths in Hulu. Um, I would say Fox was in Hulu, but Fox is no longer a thing. Um, yeah, right. So. It is, it, is, it is looking like we are moving back towards vertical integration. Now, the big difference is that studios aren't studios as they were during the Hollywood Gordon, Golden Era anymore. They are now corporations. They are big pots of money that own things. Um, they are not – so we won't, we're not going to have the uh, studio heads that we saw in the 30s, in the 40s, or the 20s. Um, we're not going to have the contract players that we saw back then. Uh, studios just give money to production companies to make stuff, and then they claim parts of the profit back. That's what happens nowadays, It's which is much more boring, if you ask me. It's not nearly as fun. <laughs> but um, that, that, that tends to be reality. Um, so we're not going to move back to that. But, again, one of the interesting things uh, to look at is how this compares to the last pandemic, which happened during a very nascent film industry, um, in 1918, the Spanish flu hit, which is right around the end of World War One, which kind of is what helped spread it around the globe as people were, it was spreading. Then people left uh, the war to go back home and brought it with them. So then soon the entire world yeah. was infected. It was a big deal. A large portion of the population died. Um, but it didn't really end up in movies. Um, part of that is that movies were very different back then. We didn't. We hadn't gone through the sixties and seventies where we were like, "Let's show reality." Um, yeah, movies and were we were very still much like about on fantasy the edge and of dreams. Sound. Yeah, sound wasn't a thing yet. Um, so he- really heavy plots were a little harder to do. Everything was a bit more loose. Um, but Hollywood did shut down um, for not many months, but a few months. And during that time, there were people who completely stopped production, and then there were people who, like, essentially broke the rules and kept making movies. Um, And it was the people who kept making movies who came out successful on the other end. I'm not endorsing that in any way, shape, or form. But uh, the Spanish flu, essentially, what it did was it took everybody who was teetering on the brink of failure in Hollywood and knocked them out. And the few people who took big bets on this or that, were able to snap up everything else. And that transition from around 1918 to 1920, 1921, is when you see the formation of the truly large studios that we know. That's when famous players Lasky becomes Paramount. Um, That's when the Universal we know becomes Universal. Columbia becomes Columbia. Um, All of the major players from the golden era of Hollywood become that. So around that time is kind of, pushed Hollywood over the edge into becoming the mega Hollywood that was the classical golden age of Hollywood that we know. Yeah, definitely. And so it's going to be really interesting to see the long-term effects of this because especially with studios, like you said, not being what they were, 
it's going to be interesting to see. I, I feel like they probably, most of the ones that we know already have enough infrastructure in the fact that they are all like big corporate conglomerations that probably we're not going to see any of them completely disappear, but maybe some of them will, will be weakened to the point where they just get gobbled up by other things like we've already been seeing. Yeah. Disney will, will probably take the opportunity to gobble up some more. Um, you know, it's not, it's not like their revenue streams have died up. Rentals are probably through the roof. New subscriptions, which is something we didn't have in 1918. New subscriptions have come in. Uh, this is a chance. This is probably just going to result in big players becoming even bigger. Um, which is, in my opinion, not great, but it's probably what's going yeah. to happen. But uh, I'm sure also, like, sales of the smaller streaming services, you know, like CBS All Access or uh, some of these other ones that are, like, just starting, I'm sure those sales are going up because people are stuck at home and looking for uh, a broader range of content. Oh, yes, of course. Those will be going up as well. But even the small, the quote-unquote small players are big players. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, <laughs> they, but are, they are all huge. The new players to the streaming side of it anyway. This is true. This is true. Um, yeah. No, it won't just be Netflix and Disney+. Plus. The it, This will this only serves as a catalyst to bring the streaming wars along faster. Yeah, um, more, more competition in the online yes. space. So it'll, it'll, it'll be a shakeup, that's for sure. We will see what happens on the other side. Um, but Jonathan... I think that might be enough depressing talk for now. <laughs> Let's talk about what we're going to discuss next week on the podcast with our running series throughout the year. Yeah, so we've got a new uh, kind of smaller series that we're going to pop in a couple episodes throughout the next year. And our first one is going to be uh, about team sports. The whole series is going to be sports in various types. And there are so many sports films that you know sometimes we'll do like you know a western episode or a musicals episode but sports is just so big that we can't even do an overview of sports films in one episode so we're going to do three episodes that still don't scratch the surface but the first no, one is going to be really <laughs> yeah we're we're really we're yeah, we're just kind of like sticking half of a toe in the water here it's yeah. kind of shocking how big um the the world of sports movies is they've always been big they're they're as big recently and part of that is because of the um comic books i comic book ization of yeah. blockbusters in recent years but during the later half of the 20th century they were really big and we're going to start off by talking about team sports which have themes which tend to be in common mm-hmm. uh and a lot of people not being six feet apart from each other uh, so we're going to start well, off with baseball. Uh, well, yeah, that's true. Um, so we're starting off with Field of Dreams baseball from 1989. Uh, and then moving on to Remember the Titans to get into the football realm from 2000. And finally, Invictus, which for some reason I thought was a soccer movie, but I think it's actually a rugby it's movie. It's rugby, yeah. And that's from 2009, which stars two actors that we saw this week. But in, in, in a very movie different t- capacities. Oh, they were in different movies. That's right. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, I thought they were in the same movie for a second. I'm wrong. I apologize. No. Um, Jonathan, I, I've already watched Field of Dreams, and I think you're going to enjoy it because I realized like 30 or 40 minutes in that it was just a Twilight Zone episode. Oh, uh, nice. 
And I was like, oh, wow, he's going he's gonna to love this. I'm so excited because all the baseball Twilight Zone episodes are pretty terrible. <laughs> well, I don't know if you're going to like it then, but I think you will. It's essentially... Well, I mean, if they can pull it off, then, it, then it's it is, an improvement. It is. It took me a minute to realize, but it is a Twilight Zone episode of Cat, Cat in the Cradle. All right. I don't know how that works, but I'm excited to figure it out. Um, so, yeah, but before we go, we got to talk about our donations. And there's been an update on the Patreon, which a lot of the people on Patreon already know. But we have added, finally, our Discord channel. So if anyone wants to kind of join the broader community of Filmlings, you can go. Anyone who subscribes on Patreon uh, at either the 2 or $5 level will be included on the Discord uh, where we're going to be doing a lot of stuff uh, in the future. Like, first of all, we're going to be uh, basically live streaming our recording sessions of the podcast. So there right might be now, an audience member listening right now. <laughs> there is one. So shout out to our faithful patron. But yeah, so anytime we are actually recording, you can tune in and hear us mess up and talk about random stuff and take bathroom breaks. Say things like flipperty gibbet. Flipperty gibbet. So if that's your thing, uh, you can see that there. Also, all of our notes while we watch the movies are now going to be posted on Discord Live, so you can like watch along with us and see our thoughts in real time. Um, and also, we're going to be doing stuff like movie parties. We had our first kind of inaugural movie party recently, and it turned out pretty well, so I think that'll be a regular thing if we do uh, movies covered on Netflix. Um, and... It gives yeah, me so an excuse to eat ice cream while I watch a movie, so I yeah, really enjoy those. So come, <laughs> come, come from our movie parties. Yeah, so that's that's going to be a fun thing. So we're we're really building up that community. If you'd like to be part of it, you can uh, go check out the Patreon. And also at the five dollar level, we have our bonus podcast. And the last episode of that, we talked about Buster Keaton's um, two reeler called One Week, featuring uh, Aaron Johnson. So not in one week but Aaron came to talk to us about one week so that was a it's lot of been fun one week since you looked at me Alex also sings that on the bonus podcast so uh, go check all that stuff out on Patreon we would super appreciate it so appreciate it alright well that's about all the time we have for this episode if you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out I can be found on Twitter at, at JS Satchel and I'm at Alex Garinger and I'm at the Blue Jay, 1994. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right, see ya. It's about you being a doctor. It's about that sacred oath that we took, remember? Billy, we've been friends for 20 years. I yes, we're friends, Sam, but I'm also your boss. I run this outfit. It's not run by committee. You do what the hell I say do.